My name is Davis Smith. I'm the CEO of Cotopaxi and an MBA graduate of the Wharton School. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with the hope of bringing together a community of business people striving to bless the world. In this podcast, you'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And now I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankum, who will host this week's interview. All right, today I'm sitting down with Matthew McConkie. Welcome to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, now you are in located in uh, uh, Holiday, Utah. Is that where your your office is, or your home, or both? Yeah, uh, both. Um, I I work right here in Holiday, and I live about a, a mile south of where I work, so it's really very convenient. And um, I work here because I live here. That's why I, I, I've always chosen short commutes in my career, and I'm glad <laughs> I do. Yeah, they're they're definitely uh, the way to go. So, and you. Uh, you're one of the co-founders of Tunbridge Peak. So what? how do you describe what you do for work? Tunbridge Peak is a real estate private equity firm. So we're an investment company that invests in commercial real estate. And uh, we aggregate capital, private capital, to invest in uh, commercial properties. So we bought a bunch of uh, like grocery-anchored retail shopping centers or storage facilities. Right now, we're really focused on seniors' housing. So independent living or assisted living or memory care facilities. Uh, and we buy them across the country and we own them as investors. And, uh, we don't, we're not boots on the ground, but we're the capital and, uh, that invest and owns them. Nice. And so take us back to the beginning when growing up, is this what you imagined you'd be doing for, for your career? Uh, no, I, I guess, I guess not. Um, <laughs> you know, I had a father who didn't give two licks about money. And never talked about um, a career per se. He was a professor. He was a wonderful man. Um, but he wasn't one who was going to coach us along a professional path. Um, so uh, he coached us in, in many other, you know, what I deem more important aspects of life. Um, <laughs> sure. But, I, you know, I think I grew up thinking, oh, I might be a dentist or I might be a doctor or and I, I went to BYU undergrad and I think chemistry scared the doctor out of me. Um, you know, so, uh, I, I had thought I might want to write, um, and I was interested in business. So I thought maybe, Hey, you know, law school or, or business school. And, um, I, I, I found, I found my way here, but it wasn't a straight shot. You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a quick and easy direct path. Yeah. And then maybe put into context, just your, your spiritual development, were you raised in the church, pretty Orthodox home? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. I mean, you probably recognize my last name and, um, <laughs> you know, my, my, my grandfather was Bruce R. McConkie and my oh, dad, okay. um, you know, raised in his home and, and I had, you know, I think I can say like Nephi, I was born of goodly parents. Um, they, uh, they loved right principle and, um, they taught us, you know, from an early age and, um, that's the choicest blessing in my life to be born into the home I was born into. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was born into a, a strong Latter-day Saint home with a Latter-day Saint tradition. And that's been a, a major component of my character and, and development, I suppose. Nice. So I assume your father is Joseph McConkie, the professor then? Well, that's or? a good guess. That's a good guess because he's a professor. That's my uncle. Oh, okay. Um, All right. So my, my dad's name was Mark. Uh, okay. He passed away just three years ago, but he was a professor at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs where I was raised. Uh, nice. So. Nice. So I'm curious. It's been years since I've read your grandfather's biography, but I remember one part where he would almost... Uh, as he was driving on, on road trips or along, he would give discourses, uh, you know, it's almost practice this. I mean, and that's what, you know, one of the things he's known for is his talks and the way he could, you know, put words together and explain the, the doctrines of the gospel. And so was there, did that sort of spill over sort of this, as far as like academics and learning, was there a strong emphasis on, on that in your own home growing up? Oh, I, I think, I think so. I remember being on car trips with, with my dad and, He'd, he'd quiz us on the scriptures and, and he, we'd try and stump him. We could open his scriptures and try and recite any verse. And, um, 
Uh, I think it had to be marked actually and, and try and stump him if he could figure out where it was. And he had a pretty good batting average boy. Um, you know, I think the gospel and gospel learning and study was very important to dad uh, as it was to grandpa. And I, I do think that influenced the way we approach uh, me and my brothers and sisters yeah. um, approach, you know, gospel learning. Nice. So uh, with that transition going from high school, uh, you know, leaving high school and whatnot, you, you, you did your undergrad at Brigham Young University. What was the, you talk about, you know, the, the chemistry scared the doctor out of you and whatnot. Was there a, a solid plan at that point? What direction you were headed? No, not really. I mean, I, I, my freshman year was the funnest year of my life. It wasn't the most academic year of my life. Um, I didn't do poorly, but I didn't do as well as I could have. Um, and again, I was thinking pre-med a little bit. And I went on a mission. I went on a mission to Taiwan. Hmm. And I think that that, uh, in, in many ways, changed a number of vectors in my life. Um, I began to think, well, I might be able to use this Mandarin Chinese in the business world. Um, and course every return missionary from taiwan you know expects the gospel to open up in china and thinks that their future may be pointed in that direction somehow um and here i am 25 years later and, and still having that same hope and ambition <laughs> yeah. but um you know I, I think that's where i was beginning to turn towards um you know either law school or or business school i was an english major so and a chinese major at byu so I was studying the liberal arts, uh, not, not really the hard sciences, um, you know, and I do remember going, uh, taking an internship, um, uh, did about six months in Beijing, China and was working on a dot com. Um, this was right 1999, like the, you know, the tech, you know, or bubble and uh, the internet bubble, I should say. And so I was getting exposed to, to business in, in that way and, and doing it in an international setting. Um, and then the following summer, I did an internship uh, on Capitol Hill working for Senator Hatch, uh, working in his personal office and then also with the Judiciary Committee. So, I, you know, not that those were real proxies necessarily for hard business or hard law, but mm -hmm. those, that's what I was taking away in my 22-year-old mind. And I think given those two experiences, I began to migrate more towards business and away from law. Um, and so I think by the time I was 23, I was pretty determined I was... Um, and knowing that I was in a liberal arts background, that I would probably need more education uh, on the topic. And mm -hmm. so I thought, well, I'll, I'll try and go to graduate school and get an MBA. Yeah. And so with those different opportunities, were you intentional about some of those opportunities? So was that you were you trying to pad that res resume to some extent or, or did they just find you? Yeah, uh, both. I think the China thing, I wanted an adventure. And mm -hmm. there were eight of us that went over for six months and lived in, you know, um, the West side of Beijing. And, and, um, we were both looking for an adventure and trying to create a little bit of a resume. Um, I was very intentional about the Capitol Hill thing. I remember, um, applying and initially getting rejected. And so I just called again and again and again, and I checked the phone records. I called 18 times. I called his office 18 times wow. to, to try and get a, uh, an internship there. And finally they just said, okay, okay, just come. <laughs> um, so I suppose I was very intentional and determined about that. Nice. And so, you know, graduating with your undergrad in English and Chi Chinese, you, you mentioned you, you expected there was grad school in your future, but I mean, you didn't jump right into it either. Right. So what was the plan between uh, then and in grad school. Right. So I, you know, I wanted to go to a good program. I uh, had understood that you needed to work a little bit before um, getting into business school. And so, you know, it was interesting because I'm, uh, again, I'm in the English department at BYU. So we're studying Milton and Shakespeare, um, you know, and the romantics and, you know, short <laughs> stories, yeah. not exactly studying, you know, net present values and, and IRRs and this sort of thing. And, and so um, you kind of have to listen around and talk to people about what they're doing to sort of get acclimated to what the possibilities are. Uh, and I just remember um, two buzzwords that were happening, um, management consulting and investment banking. Now, mm -hmm. I didn't know what either of those things were. Um, but I figured, well, if they're coming to town, I might as well just throw my hat in the ring. And, and so, you know, when, when the companies would come and there were career fairs and whatnot, I just took my resume and I dropped it at every table. 
Um, and when the banks were all in town, um, you know, I, I was ill-prepared. I remember having a stapled resume. Like, that is a total faux pas. Um, but I, I took this two-page stapled resume, and I dropped it off um, at a bunch of the investment banks. And I was surprised to be getting calls back. So I interviewed with, you know, Lehman Brothers and Goldman Sachs and a handful of other banks. Um, and when they showed interest, all of a sudden I was interested. Um, so in many ways, uh, there, uh, you know, my, the beginning of my career was born out of, of hope uh, and ignorance. Um, but I ended up taking my first job with Goldman in New York City uh, in the uh, equities division, you know, on a, on a sales and trading desk. And that's really where my business career in earnest kind of began. Yeah. And, and so in, in hindsight, I mean, I think we all have, I know that I probably wouldn't have done the major I did, you know, in hindsight, but do you, I mean, with this liberal arts undergrad, I mean, would you recommend that path? Is it, or, mm -hmm. or, I mean, what if someone really enjoys that, but also knows they'll probably end up in business? I mean, what would you say to that type of student? That's a great question. Um, and I have answered that a number of times in my life, and I hope I don't, um, you know, send people down a, you know, a false path. Um, I'm so glad I studied what I did, hmm. and I don't know that um, I would ever get the chance again to immerse myself in the classics and in you know literature that I you know appreciated so much, and really to deconstruct thought and language. Um, I'm so glad I did what I did. I am also of the belief that, um, you know, if you really do well in your undergraduate degree, it might not matter uh, really what you do. And if you can supplement that with some great experience in your summers um, and be because everyone's going to probably look at a graduate degree. Now, there's a lot of people who don't need a graduate degree and there's the opportunity cost of that time and, and, and education that, you know, but, but for those who, you know, who want to go to grad school. I'm not sure you have to be an econ major and a mm. finance major and then go get an MBA on top of that. Um, you know, that, that wasn't my path. And I was, I was really glad, frankly, that I had both. Yeah. Yeah. And, and did you feel like it came up maybe in the job interviews or even the graduate school process of confusion? Like, well, why, why, what's with the, what's, what's with the degree here? <laughs> yeah, I do. Because I remember at, at, when I was interviewing at Goldman, I'm in New York, I'm in one New York Plaza, the skyscraper. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interviewing and I remember we had, I can't, I don't recall now. It was either 19 or 29 interviews, different people that I had to interview to wow. get a job there. And I was with one managing director and he looked at my resume and he says, English major, like, um, why are you here? And I don't remember how we led to this, but I ended up, you know, quoting a Shakespearean sonnet to him. <laughs> and he just looked at me like I was nuts. Like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> what, what's going on here? Um, you know, so I think, I, but, but then again, I think, and this maybe speaks to Goldman's culture a little bit they would often say, Hey, anything that you were going to need you to do, we can train you. Uh -huh. so they were looking for someone that they felt like was malleable and capable of learning, you know, their process. And then they kind of take a flyer on you if you didn't have a traditional business background. Nice. So you're, you're in the workforce a few years and then it was there a time where you felt like now it's, now's the time to, to look at grad school seriously. Yeah. I've been about four years and I only did two years at Goldman. And then I took a, a job, which was very different. I worked for, um, I worked for the state of Utah. Um, I was, it was kind of a governor appointed position in economic development um, where I was covering Asia. So I was what wow. they called the director of Asian trade in the state of Utah economic development and got hired under Mike Levitt, who I really admire. He, he shortly after I was hired was called up by Bush to, you know, be on mm -hmm. the cabinet in Washington, DC. And then Olean Walker, um, his su successor, uh, was the governor. And I worked um, not often directly with her, but on occasion, we did travel to Asia together. Um, you know, but that sort of had this um, public service experience that, you know, was married well, I suppose, with the the Wall Street experience. And, 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 the, and after four years of, of doing those two jobs, I applied to business school and um, applied to a number of schools, ended up going to the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, and that was really the first time that I had a, 
a thorough scrubbing, I think, in some of the, you know, the, the business academic disciplines. Yeah. And with those, you know, the public service roles, was it, was the, do, do you walk into those thinking that it'll just last as long as maybe the administration, the current administration, or uh, is that, is that the, the idea? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, well, actually, traditionally here in Utah, it didn't necessarily mean that. Um, mm. In my case, it did. I had been there for about two years, and then John Huntsman ran for governor. And he ran on the platform of transforming economic development in the state. And so, you know, whether it was wise or not, which I'm sure people could debate, debate either side of that argument, when he got elected, he came in and just cleaned house. So there were like people had been there for 30 years and everyone was just gone. I still remember Jason Chaffetz <laughs> like brought us all into this big room. Um, and I would kind of felt like cattle. We were all just brought in there and we were all laid off at the same time. There must've been 150 of us in there. Wow. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I didn't have terribly warm feelings uh, towards that experience, but on the other hand, I was young. I was very young and I knew I was going to grad school. So it impacted yeah. me far less than it did maybe some other sort of career long officials at the state. Yeah. So tell us about the, just the process of, of grad school. Did you have a, a short list? Uh, what do you remember about, you know, applying and, and is, if there's any stories there? Yeah. Uh, not a lot of stories. I did have a short list um, and sort of some of the, you know, typical suspects, I suppose. I, I kind of felt like I, I wanted to try and go to a, a top school. Um, and I, I interviewed at a handful of schools. I remember, um, being back on the East coast and going to Boston and New York and Philly and other places just to interview with the business schools. Um, but nothing in particular that was earth shattering. I, I applied, um, you know, I, I did what they called the lauder program at Wharton, which was a dual degree. It was a dual master's degree program. And one was a master's of international studies in Mandarin Chinese. You could do it in one of seven language tracks and mine was Mandarin. Um, and then you got the MBA at the same time. So it was, it was intensive. There's more work involved, but you, you applied to both programs independent. You had to be accepted to both programs independent. Um, but you know, perhaps that helped my application. I don't know. Um, you know, but that, but yeah, that, that happened. And then I, I got married at the same time, you know, I got married and, you know, within a month we were driving from Salt Lake, um, back to Philadelphia together to start this new life. Wow. Wow. Any, you know, just with your current professional background and experience, like if somebody is applying to uh, MBA school, is, is there any advice that you have now with like, your current perspective? Well, I think, uh, I think business school is not for everybody, but it certainly um, has benefited me. Uh, I was one who didn't have, again, that educational background uh, that was, I greatly benefited from my, from my MBA I often say that, you know, you go to business school for reputation, for network, and then for education, probably in mm -hmm. that order. Um, and I say that because that's the way it has sort of worked for me. Mm -hmm. I think the school that I went to has opened doors for me. Um, it certainly has helped me create relationships. My current partners, for instance, I met at school. Um, and so the company that I now have was a direct um, development out of the relationships that I took away from that experience. Um, you know, and I learned a lot of really great things that I've mostly forgotten um, at this point. So <laughs> I, 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 th I do, I, I think it's probably reputational and relationship, um, you know, number one and number two, and, and then what you learn um, as important as it is, frankly, you're just, you're going to, you're probably going to be using a fraction of what you're exposed to, um, you know, from a curriculum perspective. Yeah. So anything as far as in the context of, uh, MBA school, as far as that experience, what you learned, uh, regrets you have, or what really helped you in that, that journey that would be worth mentioning? Well, I just think, um, I, I think having really great people, or this is a theme throughout your career. I don't care if you're in school or not, just surrounding yourself with really great people and capable people and people better than you and smarter than you. And, um, sort of that rising tide lifts all boats mentality. That's what I took away. I just met some phenomenal people from all over the world. Um, and, and I felt, you know, 
I felt it was a privilege to be around them and work with them. Of course, we're in learning groups. We had a team of six or seven people that we did a lot of work with. Um, but just being exposed to um, to fantastic people uh, was, I think, one of the greatest blessings of that of that experience for me. Yeah. And was there anything you know, proactive or routine you had in order to make sure you surround yourself with those people or did it just organically happen through different group assignments and whatnot? Probably mostly organically happened. I mean, you were assigned, you did have a team of six or eight people that you were with for a year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but then I think, you know, we did a lot of traveling. So we traveled to uh, China both summers with this dual degree program that I was in. So you travel internationally with someone with a group of people, we were with 60 people. You really get to know them quite well. Um, you know, you eat together and you live in the same apartment complex and you travel together and commute. And, um, so those relationships, uh, they, they, they form pretty strong. Yeah. What about just your background with, uh, with Chinese? I imagine, you know, with in business school or even in a professional life, business life, I mean, Chinese just comes in handy, right? I mean, that it's such a, a great language to have when the vast majority of the world uh, speaks that. Any, anything to add to that as far as your school or in your professional life? Well, I certainly thought going into my career that I would uh, end up doing a lot of business in China. Hmm. And um, I've lived in China you know, two or three times. And you know, especially in the formative part of my career, I thought I would make that a deliberate decision, uh, a, a career path. Uh, I remember sitting down with a man named Kent Watson, who actually ended up serving in the 70, uh, Elder Watson. But he was a he was a China guy. Another man was Elder Anthony Perkins of the 70. He was mm-hmm. the head of McKinsey in China. And Kent Watson was uh, with, I think it was Pricewaterhouse as their head um, head of their tax or audit over in China. So these are really influential guys. And I was, I, I sat down with um, Kent Watson and, and, and I talked to him about a career in China and he said, well, it all depends. Um, he says, you, you can be either a Johnny Appleseed or a double comma guy. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he says, well, there's a lot of these Johnny Appleseeds who come over and they go and they just, you know, spread their, their, their seeds around. And then they, you know, might, grab a few apples and then head back to America. They want to have the experience. He says, or you can be a double comma guy. So what's a double comma guy? He says a double comma guy is a guy where it takes two commas to write his salary. Um, (laughs) And he says, if you want to be that, you have to go all in. You Mm -hmm. have to do, you have to commit your life to this track. And as I really thought about it, I thought, you know, I don't know if I love baseball and hot dogs too much or, <laughs> or what, but I'm not willing to go all in. And I think at that point in my career, this is during business school, I sort of made the decision I was not going to pursue a full career in China. Um, and, that, and that's where I really focused more on finance, private equity, and real estate um, and made that deliberate decision. Hmm. That's interesting. That's maybe you don't hear, but I'm sure most people sort of come to a crossroads where they have to make that decision. But, uh, you know, I think that's, that's great advice that you either got to be all in or realize this is just an experience. And then you're going to come home and, and plant your roots at, elsewhere. Yeah, I think so. Nice. Nice. Uh, anything as far as the, just the, the different jobs you had after graduating from MBA school and that experience up until starting the Tunbridge Capital? Well, I, I took my first job with a real estate development company down in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, and it was a company called Crosland. We were in about a seven or eight state region uh, and, and we're developing big, beautiful buildings of all kinds, office buildings or multifamily apartment buildings, big mixed use, you know, shopping centers, open air concepts. I mean, really, really nice stuff. Uh, and I was there working with the CEO in the corporate office. And we were basically acting like an investment committee that would fund the different deals that were brought to us by the, the different arms of development within the company. Um, so great perspective and great learning. Uh, of course, um, you know, I was there after a couple of years, 2008 rolls around and the whole world kind of blows up in a real estate credit um, induced recession. Um, and that, you know, I could read the writing on the wall that this wasn't gonna, 
uh, we weren't going to be developing anytime soon. And the NACREF, which measures the, you know, public securities, the real estate market, um, you know, uh, this index, it dropped like 40% almost overnight. Um, and so everyone who was in real estate was all of a sudden over levered and, um, and there wasn't going to be capital flowing into the sector for a long time. And so, uh, to make a long story short, uh, I, I wrote a business plan and I gave it to my CEO and I said, I want to go back to New York where I was before. And, um, I'm going to raise capital for the firm and for our projects. And, um, he presented it to the board and, and a couple of days later he said, go. Um, and this is maybe where the crossover between business and personal and spiritual comes into play because, um, I remember being very thoughtful and, do, and, and prayerful about, about this and, you know, feeling like I wanted to change sometimes. And maybe most of the time, I think the Lord probably leaves you to your own devices. He respects your agency and says, Hey, I've given you all the faculties to go and, and work through some of these issues. In this case, I, um, it seemed very clear to me after being, after praying and fasting about it, that this is a, uh, that I should go. Um, and I had a couple of, of, of deliberate and poignant experiences. And so I trusted in that and I submitted the business plan and literally within a week it had been approved and we were making plans now for me to move my little family back up to Manhattan. Um, and I, I don't think the reasons were professional. Um, you know, within six weeks of being there, I was called to be the branch president and then later the bishop of the, of the, of the ward in Chinatown. Um, which was just a phenomenal life experience that I would never want to miss. Hmm. And there was a great work that happened while, while, while we were, we were just voyagers on this amazing experience. But I think we had some 200 um, people join the church in the four years um, that we were privileged to be there because of the amazing missionary force that we had. And just some of the experiences working with these mostly illegal immigrants um, who were, coming to America and claiming religious asylum, um, working with them to, you know, on their temporal path and their spiritual path was just for me, life changing. Um, and I think that's why I was getting the nudges, um, to go was for that experience, not necessarily because the Lord needed me to be a, you know, an equity capital markets guy in New York and doing this <laughs> or that sort of thing with, <laughs> with real estate. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a great point to, to underscore is that, you know, it's, it, we, we, we all want these dynamic careers and careers that we feel like we're making progress and they're, they're, you know, having a positive impact in the world. But sometimes that's just a secondary to maybe the, the, the sanctific, the sanctifying journey that your family's on, you know, as you do this, do these jobs and careers, right. Uh, the Lord may take you somewhere, not for the career as much as just the experience for your family and, and that community in which you live. Well, I think that's definitely the case. There's a, there's a passage in Ephesians chapter one that talks about our heavenly father giving us, um, or blessing us with all spiritual blessings, you know, mm -hmm. from the foundation of the world. And it's almost like a premortal patriarchal blessing from, from our father. Um, well, what are all spiritual blessings? I don't think they have much to do with your job or a certain company. You know, he wants us to have particular experiences um, that are the covenant making experiences and the spiritually developing type of experiences. Um, and and that, that's not to say he doesn't care about what you do. He, do, he does because you do, yeah. but, but that's not the defining character um, trait that, that, that you possess. And um, that's not what he cares the most about, I suppose. Yeah. And I'm just curious, you know, you mentioned the the time in 2008 with, you know, the real estate market, uh, which was, was crazy to, to say the least. Uh, comparing that to, you know, the commercial, running a commercial real estate company in, in during COVID, you know, when there's such a shift in commercial real estate and now that's used and, and I'm sure there's other dynamics I don't yet understand. But any, what, what did you notice just about the, in the recent years related to your industry? Well, um, in my particular segment, uh, which is seniors housing, um, we had a bullseye on our back, uh, because 
I, at one point, I had read that 40% of the deaths from COVID had happened in some sort of long-term care facility. And so um, for, for us, uh, you saw occupancies uh, you know, decrease relatively dramatically. I think nationwide, we were mid to upper 80s as, a, as an occupancy base for seniors housing. You compare that to multifamily, which is mid 90s. I mean, that, that those are easier to fill and less difficult to operate. Um, but it dropped down to the mid 60s, um, you know, mid to high 60s, sort of nationwide. Um, so it, it was a very challenging time. And I don't think we're out of the woods yet, but we're certainly seeing a pretty dramatic, um, you know, rebound. But no, no, the last couple of years with COVID were very difficult uh, on, on our industry. Having said that, um, you know, the government stimulus packages um, did help a lot of operators and real estate owners in our industry so that there wasn't a lot of distress that was being made available on the market. We weren't buying distressed deals, which everyone thought, well, maybe there's an opportunity here. We haven't really seen that materialize. But, but no, COVID, COVID was tough. And the other thing I would say about COVID is that we have, uh, uh, as, as many of your guests um, who run businesses, uh, you know, we've had real labor issues and, uh, and, and wage issues that have really impacted us. Um, you know, there's just not as much uh, available. Well, there's not, not as many people who want to work in our facilities. I mean, you can, you know, we were paying CNAs like 12 to 15 bucks an hour and now it's 18 to 20 and, um, and they can go someplace else. That's maybe a little bit more glamorous. So the labor market has, has been impacted by, um, by COVID and definitely has influenced our business. Mm, interesting. So let's jump into some of these principles you said. Maybe we've already uh, touched on some of them, but I um, want to make sure we didn't miss anything um, that would be helpful for the listening audience. But uh, the first principle is the best of company is none too good for you. Maybe expand on that. Yeah. So when Joseph F. Smith was the president of the church, um, he, um, and maybe even earlier, I guess, he would write, beautiful and comprehensive letters to his children who were serving on missions. Um, and in one letter that he wrote to his son, Joseph Fielding Smith, who had become the president of the church in the early 1970s, um, he, he used that phrase, the best of company is none too good for you. And what he was saying is you got to seek out, um, you know, really great company and you're good enough to be in that, hmm. you know, in, in that company. Um, and I often say this to returning missionaries, you just, you just keep the, the light that you have gathered and, you know, don't, don't dim it. You go find people that are attracted to that. It's that whole principle of, you know, DNC 8840, which is likely within the light. Um, and you know, you, you, you go find people that you want to be like, that are going to make you better. And you do that in a professional sense. Um, I think that's, uh, I think it's really important. You know, they often say that an A leader will surround themselves with A plus people and that a B leader will surround themselves with C type of people so that they can feel, you know, like they're superior to in some sense. Um, but no, I, I'd, I'd much rather be around people who I, who I think pull me up. And I think that's what president Smith was saying to his son in those letters is that the best of company is none too good for you. Seek out that company. Yeah. And what does that look like in your, your current, uh, role? Does a story come to mind as far as how you push yourself to make sure you have the, that, that good, the best of company around you or working with you? Yeah, that's a good question. I've been very deliberate about the partners that I've picked. And I, th I think I have wonderful partners um, who had characteristics that I admired, um, including honesty and integrity, and to say nothing of their, um, their intelligence and their business savvy. Um, you know, but I observe this in the business world, you know, on a no-names basis. I recently worked on a transaction with a big private equity group in New York, and, and I saw the way that a senior manager treated a, a, still a, a subordinate, but a, a senior, a managing director at a, at a big you know, investment firm. And it was really offensive, frankly. It was condescending. It was demeaning. Um, I felt so bad you know, for the guy that I called him afterwards and I wanted to validate him because actually he's brilliant. Um, 
you know, but I just saw that. And I said, you know, I don't care how much money that you wave in front of me. I don't want to be in that kind of an environment. And that can happen in small town, Iowa, as much as, you know, fifth Avenue in New York. I get that. But, uh, you know, life's too short. Pick people you really, you know, respect and, and want to be around and who are going to make you better. Um, and don't sell out, you know, for, for the mammon. Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. All right. Uh, principle first, people second, people first, things second. I, I hope I got that right. <laughs> well, yeah, that's kind of a family saying principle first and people second, people first and things second. I guess what, what we're saying is that whenever there's conflict, it's inevitably there's a decision that has to be made on how you're going to weigh in on something. And, um, you know, my dad used to say this and he would just say, you know, if, if you stick to, you know, truth or integrity, hard work or honesty, let's say as a principle, um, you know, when somebody comes along and you have to choose between making that person happy and clinging to that principle, you, you, you choose the principle first. However, when that same, when you're presented with another situation where it's the chance to have things or to satisfy a relationship, uh, you choose the people. So that's the, that's the people first things. Second, um, you know, you don't sacrifice meaningful relationships because there's more money for you in a deal or because there's a promotion or because you know what I mean? That you, 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 you value the person more than the thing, but you have to be true to the principle uh, or else you'll violate your own, you know, sense of truth. And, and that, I, I that's, what's, you know, uh, what I mean by principle first and people second. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah. Is there a, any particular scenario, business experience, family experience that comes to mind where you've, you've drawn on that wisdom? Well, I, you know, um, believe me, I, I, when I, when I talk about my family, I'm going to do so in a glowing way. That does not mean um, that I, <laughs> I'm unaware of our warts. Um, yeah. But let me tell you about a story of my dad, because I, th I do think it illustrates the point. Um, now, he was a university professor and didn't make a lot of money, and he had nine kids and, um, you know, uh, worked hard for every dime that he, um, that he made. When he was, I suppose he was in his 30s, maybe young 40s, um, you know, he had invested with um, a man that he knew and that he trusted. We were good friends with this, this family, um, and it it turned out that the man, although he was a good man, made some really bad decisions. And, um, you know, there was a lot of fraud involved and a lot of people lost all their money, um, including my mom and dad. And I think that they had $35,000 with this man. So in the 1980s, you know, that was a lot to them. It was going to pay for a few missions for their kids and this sort of thing in college. Um, and, um, you know, he, this man went to prison. Now, this is a man that we had Thanksgiving dinner at his house. I mean, that's, that's, that's how close we were. He spoke at my baptism. All right. We were, wow. we were very close. Um, you know, a lot of people uh, were so upset at this guy that they wouldn't talk to him. Um, and he was ostracized. Of course, he went to prison. I was really touched by my dad who um, he didn't. He went to visit him in prison on a regular basis. Um, and he just frankly forgave him, um, this debt and he got out of prison. And I remember now being maybe in college and going to his home to, we were caroling. My mom and dad would take us and give him a loaf of bread and carol at his house. And I remember seeing him there and he was just a shadow of a former self. His personality, he was this big, gregarious, uh, charismatic man. And now he was older and tireder and he was in a small apartment instead of the big mansion that he was in before that we would go to to visit him in um and i i just remember you know my, my my parents never treated him any differently and they loved him through that and and that was to me more about the the principle um you know over the um well over things and and compensation. Yeah. I don't know that, that that's a, that maybe that's a, that's just an example. It maybe illustrates that principle a little bit. Yeah. I love that. That's, that's awesome. Uh, and then, uh, apologize when you, when you're wrong. I mean, I think this is just sage advice in, in every context of life, but 
probably, you know, when you're, when you're the boss, you're running things or you're the manager, it's harder to do when the buck stops with you. But, uh, I mean, how, how do you, how do you go about apologizing when you're wrong? Is it uh, harder than, than just saying it? Well, I think you just fess up when you make a mistake. You just kind of, yeah. yeah, because we all do and just own it early. Um, uh, let me, let me tell you an example, uh, that, that impressed me when I was in New York the second time, um, I, I was introduced to Dick Fold, who was the CEO of Lehman Brothers. Now, he had recently um, left Lehman, and this was after Lehman Brothers effectively was the, you know, the pin that pricked the bubble that just exploded and caused the 2008 downturn. I mean, Dick Fold was a brash uh, sailor of a man in his speech and salty. Um, you know, he was he was sort of demonized in, you know, 2000, the years after 2008 as the face of corporate greed. Hmm. Um, now I don't claim to know him that well. I, I, I had, you know, a lot of experience with him, you know, maybe 10 or 15 meetings. And we did, we did, we actually transacted together. We did a deal together. And, um, that wasn't the man that I, you know, was interacting with. He was still rough and tumble, but on one occasion, um, he called me, and he was uh, upset about something that he thought I didn't do and I, um, because we were working on a transaction. And um, I said, well, let's rectify the problem. And the truth is I had done what, um, what I was supposed to do. He later found that out. Um, and I remember driving somewhere with my family on a Saturday morning, and I was um, in upstate New York someplace, and I got a phone call from Dick Fold. So here's a guy that's been the CEO of, you know, a major investment bank on Wall Street and, you know, was, it was, was worth billions and I think lost a lot of that in 08. Um, but he called to apologize. Hmm. And he just said, I want to I tell you I'm really sorry because I accused you of something that wasn't right and it was wrong of me and I wanted you to know that. Um, and I thought, you know, you didn't have to do that. And you know, again, in the eyes of the world, you, 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 you've had all this credential and I'm this young guy. And, um, that, that impressed me. It left an impression on me. So mm-hmm. I don't know about the rest of his career, but I know when he was dealing with me, he was fair. Um, and he fessed up when he was wrong and it, it meant something to me. Yeah. And I love that being proactive enough to pick up the phone and call rather than waiting till you're in a meeting again together. I mean, he was very, he let out with that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Next principle is count the cost. Expand. <laughs> That's just, you know, when you're picking a career, um, you obviously, you know, maybe some of your listeners are at a decision point um, of, you know, business school or a certain job. I just think you have to count the cost. Uh, I'm in real estate. And so all, you know, and I'm in, on the finance side. So I spend all my time looking at spreadsheets and, and literally counting the cost of these things. So maybe my ears perked up a little bit um, when the Savior said in, in, um, in the New Testament, he says, for which of you, this is in Luke 14, 28, for which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it. Um, and it's just, a, that's a pretty basic thing to think about, but uh, are you really counting what this engagement, this career, this uh, job, this school is going to, uh, is going to cost you emotionally, um, relationship wise, um, financially, importantly, um, and so, you know, trying to weigh all of that, what's the opportunity cost of this decision? Um, you know, weighing that up front is really important. And I guess that veers away from being impulsive and, and, and veers you towards being really deliberate about some of these decisions and prayerful, um, counseling with a lot of people who may know more than you and, and gleaning something from their wisdom. But, uh, yeah, count the cost before you dive in. Yeah. All right. So what, what is the chess principle? Well, so when I was single um, and living in New York and working at the investment bank, I had um, I had some great roommates, and uh, one of them's name was Ethan Okura, and he's probably in many ways one of the most brilliant guys I've ever met. Multidisciplinary, just just this really sharp. He was a, a student at Columbia Law School, but he could do anything, um, and you know, I had played chess growing up. 
but he was, you know, very good at it and he needed somebody to, to beat up on. So he was teaching me how to, <laughs> to really play the game. And I remember coming home to our brownstone on the Upper West Side of Manhattan after work and, um, you know, he'd lay out the chessboard and we'd just begin to play. We must have played hundreds and hundreds of matches. And at first he was beating me 10 out of 10 games. And I think by the end of two years and after five or 600 matches, maybe I was winning four of them, um, wow. you know, but he, he, we, 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 we talked a lot about chess analogies and this is what this analogy is, which is that, um, you know, in that game openings really matter the way you open the game. Um, and then there's a couple of principles that govern your success. One is like, pawn structure one is tempo like who's driving the tempo of the game and then importantly one is you know the power pieces and putting them maybe in the middle of the board or in a position where they can actually um you know advance your strategic cause and and i think that's analogy for life if you can put the pieces together early on in your academic or professional career Hmm and you put your power pieces in place and you put the pawn structure, then the game kind of unfolds to you. It opens up to you and you'll be in such a better position. Um, and no matter what, you know, adversity you run into, you'll be playing from a position of strength. And that's the chess principle. And, and so it applies to doing things early and, and, you know, not squandering the opportunities early on in the game. And I guess that's what I mean, you know, yeah, when I love chess principle. Yeah, my mind goes to uh, you know Bill Walsh, Bill Walsh, the famous 49ers head coach, and I read it one of his books called uh, uh, "The Score Takes Care of Itself" or something. You know, like getting in this this approach where you're you're doing the the small things early enough that you don't have to worry about where you're going to pull three four touchdowns out of you know out of thin air when you've already built the structure it'll naturally happen. And, and, uh, and especially early on, I bet, you know, you had a lot more autonomy to do some of these things before you had a family, before you were married and, you know, early on in your, your uh, academic career. So that's awesome. Yeah. I think that's, that's, that's a, that's a good analogy there with Bill Walsh. So involve and last principle involve heaven in your plans. You, you've touched on a few experiences where, where you've done that. Any that we that you haven't touched on yet? Well, um, I suppose there's a lot there that you could say, and I'm sure that your audience would resonate with this. Um, you know, like I said, he's not gonna, I don't think the Lord, um, is nearly as concerned with what you do as professionally as, as the kind of character that you develop and who you are, but that's not to say that he won't, um, involve himself in, you know, in your work to the extent that you, you know, that you seek that. I mean, he said to Alma, right. Cry into him over your crops or your fields that, that you might prosper in them hmm. and cry over the flocks of your fields, quote, that they might have increase. He's okay with us um, working hard and expecting increase. Um, I had one example that maybe I'll share with you. And um, when I was living in New York is now I'm in my young thirties Um I had been working with a guy who was a close friend of mine at, at Wharton. And we were talking about creating a, they call it a triple, a single tenant triple net lease fund. It was an investment fund for investment in real estate together. And it was my job to work on the, the economic model that modeled a waterfall structure, which was just, it's kind of a finance term, but it's, uh, there are some complicated modeling exercises in Excel. Um, and I had done a fair bit of that, but I, I never considered myself a ninja um, in Excel necessarily. <laughs> yeah. um, but this is my job. And so uh, for, for our little venture that we were you know, proposing to start, well, I worked and worked and worked on that and I just couldn't get it right. Uh, and I didn't have anyone around me to help. And it bothered me so much after, you know, hours and hours of working on this formula that I couldn't sleep one night at 3 a.m. I got up and I walked to the office, you know, through New York city uh, to go and work on this because I had my normal work during the day. And I remember being in the office, it's dark and I'm working work and I cannot solve the problem. And now I've spent hours and hours on one stupid formula. And I was so frustrated and upset. Um, 
that I actually like got out of my chair, fell on my knees, and I just said, why can I not solve this? Would you please help me solve this equation? Um, and I, this is not hyperbole. This is not, um, I'm not, you know, making this more dramatic than it was. I sat up in the chair and the very next time I tried this equation, it totally worked and the model just worked. Hmm. Now you could say, Oh, that's coincidence and whatever. You know, and, and I'll say hogwash. All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, and I just felt this, this debt of gratitude that, you know what was the interesting part about that whole thing is that stupid model didn't matter at all. And that business plan never went anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Didn't, didn't matter. Like the Lord was not helping me so that I could go, you know, actualize this investment. I think he was just saying, look, I'll help, you know, rely on me and I will help. And that was a much more important lesson to me than whatever that equation was. Yeah. Uh, that's powerful. I love the, love that story. Uh, well, any, I got one more question for you, but any point or principle or story that, uh, that we didn't hit on that you want to make sure we hit before we wrap up or do we cover no, it all? I don't, no, I don't think so. There's, there's so much we could pull on, but I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, <laughs> belabor any, any point. I, sure, you know, sure. so. Well, the last question I have is if, if you were in a room full of, you know, MBA students or, young professionals who are striving to, you know, find success in, in the world, but also enhance their spiritual experience and testimony. What, uh, what final advice would you give to them? Well, keep first things first. Don't forget who you are in the pursuit of uh, material things. And this is coming from a guy who's worked on wall street, who went to a finance related business school and who's in private equity. Like my job is to make money for people. So, and, and we've had some success at that at times and other times, you know, not. So I, I'm not trying to minimize the importance of that, but you cannot lose yourself in that pursuit. You got to remember who you are. Like we had a family saying, remember who you are and act accordingly. And don't forget yourself because you got a new job and you've got a new peer group and you're, you know, trying to climb some ladder. Um, you know, just, just don't forget who you are. Remember what's important in life. And that's people. It's relationships with family and friends and with heaven. Um, that's the development of your character. Um, and all of that will be stressed and, and tried at times. Um, and there'll be times that you, you fail even in your own character, but that you fix it and, and, and you don't relinquish your integrity. And, and, um, so anyway, that's, that's just something I'd say. Remember who you are and act accordingly. Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society.